2: The identity you adopt locks you into a set of expectations you must meet. Yesterday, I talked extensively with a group of coaches who worked alongside Mike Hickman. The man, Yaqib Tlaib, shot and killed in Texas. The coaches, to a man, all said, Akib Tlaib, the former NFL star, could have easily de-escalated the entire situation. The reality is, Tlaib's reputation made that impossible. His identity dictates that he runs toward trouble, not away from it. He's always been that about that life, the lifestyle unafraid to turn violent over a simple verbal disagreement. It's a lifestyle that interprets disrespect as worthy of the death penalty. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Wednesday uh, to you and yours. Happy Hump Day. Uh, we have another uh, great show planned for you today. Uh, we're gonna stick on the Akib Tlaib, Yaqib Tlaib, Mike Hickman's story. Uh, we think it's important. We think our audience is uh, responding uh, to the story and uh, I'm passionate about what the tragedy that befell Mike Hickman and and examining all of the root causes. Uh, T.J. Moe in studio with us uh, today here in Nashville. Happy to have him. Uh, Dave Shannon's going to join us. Royce White's going to join us. Uh, Virgil Walker from G3 Ministries. Our newest member of the Fearless Army is going to join us. And, of course, uh, Pastor Bobby Harrington and Pastor Anthony Walker uh, from uh, Renew.org, they'll be here as well for Tennessee Harmony. Uh, but let's first start where we like to start this show uh, with a fire. 25 years ago, when I entered local talk radio in Kansas City, I gave myself a nickname, Big Sexy. It was a double entendre. As a talk show host, it represented that I had a big mouth and spewed sexy opinions. Off air, it represented my narcissism, hedonism, and delusion. It was an embrace and celebration of my enormous size and sexual lust. The nickname exemplified my toxic level of self-idolatry. I built an identity based on my sin. A seemingly fun and harmless nickname normalized and justified my gluttony and a social life that led me away from marriage and family. The identities we promote matter. I bring this up as it relates to Akib Tlaib, the former NFL star, intricately involved in a Pee-wee football brawl that led to the shooting death of Mike Hickman. Tlaib's brother, Yakub Tlaib, has been arrested for the shooting. Video evidence and eyewitness accounts suggest Akib Tlaib sparked the brawl. No rational person can feign surprise that Akib Talib was involved in a deadly confrontation. Akib Talib spent the better part of two decades projecting an identity and image of himself as a football-playing thug. He wanted everyone he came in contact with to know he was about that life. About that life is urban slang for having an ostentatious lifestyle involving drugs, guns, and violence. It's an image commercial rappers embrace and emote. Tupac Shapur, Shakur tatted thug life across his stomach. Snoop Dogg celebrates his membership in the Crips gang. So did Nipsey Hussle. Gunmen murdered Shakur and Hussle. Snoop faced murder charges years ago. Rappers attract the same negative violent energy their music promotes. The identities they embrace shorten their life expectancies. That's why football and basketball's adoption of rap as their musical soundtracks is dangerous and problematic. That's why black culture being so heavily defined by hip-hop music is dangerous and problematic. The very identity we have embraced is killing us. In 2007, Akib Talib starred on one of the greatest Kansas football teams of all time. Under the direction of coach Mark Mangino, the Jayhawks compiled a 12-1 record and beat Virginia Tech in the Orange Bowl. I covered those Jayhawks as a sports columnist for the Kansas City Star. Tlaib was the best player on that team. He also had the reputation as the worst person on that team. Even as a collegian, Tlaib wanted everyone to know he was about that life. His reputational choice is not uncommon uncommon among black football and basketball players. They adorn themselves in prison tattoos, sag their pants, braid their hair, drape themselves in gold chains, and dabble in freestyle rap. Too many black jocks wanna be black rappers. It's no secret. Back in July, NFL quarterback Teddy Bridgewater made a social media post complaining about his peers posing as gangsters. Writing on Instagram, tired of seeing football players portray this tough guy image or pretend he's a gangster. You went to school, attended those classes, and some even got their college degree. You might have a 1.5% a chance of professional football players that on that. But the remaining 98.5% are only football tough. So don't wait until you inherit this legal money from the league to decide you want to be tougher and portray a street image because it's kids that's looking up to everything we do. Plus, it's someone sitting in a cell or posted in the hood who might have been just as hood as you that would advise you otherwise. LeBron James liked that tweet and promoted it, or liked that social media message and promoted it. But let's be clear here. Akib Talib courted the gangster image long before he became an NFL millionaire. What's troublesome is his unwillingness to discard that image. What's really troublesome is that there is little cultural pressure for him to adopt a more positive reputation and image. Popular culture celebrates the bad guy. From Tony Soprano to Jay-Z, the American zeitgeist rewards the unrepentant criminal. Akib Tlaib was involved in a series of unflattering on and off the field situations that tarnished his reputation. In 2008, he engaged in a brawl at the NFL Rookie Symposium. In 2009, he was arrested after an altercation with a taxi driver. In 2011, Akib and his mother were suspected of firing a gun at his sister's boyfriend. In 2016, Tlaib attacked Tennessee Titans receiver Harry Douglas on the sideline. After the game, Tlaib told reporters that he would beat Douglas's ass the next time he saw them at their shared agent's office. In 2017, Akeeb and Raiders receiver Michael Crabtree had an ugly on-field skirmish. Akeeb snatched a gold chain from Crabtree's neck. People in the media started calling Akeeb to leave two chains after he did that, had that violent confrontation with Michael Crabtree. Despite all that, somehow Fox Sports and the NFL were comfortable handing to leave a broadcasting job his shady background legitimized and enhanced his credentials. He was a coveted broadcaster. Amazon plans or at least planned, to make him part of the NFL's Thursday night football broadcast this season. The culture is reinforcing the message that bad is good. The identity you adopt locks you into a set of expectations. You must meet yesterday. I talked extensively with a group of coaches who worked alongside Mike Hickman, the man Yaquib Tlaib shot and killed. The coaches, to a man, all said Akeeb Talib could have easily de-escalated a very tense situation. The reality is Tlaib's reputation made that impossible. His identity dictates that he runs towards trouble, not away from it. He's always been about that life. A lifestyle unafraid to turn violent over a simple verbal disagreement. It's a lifestyle that interprets disrespect as worthy of the death penalty. The sports world's partnership with hip-hop culture undermines men like Akib Talib from evolving past the self-destructive identities they adopt as kids. The NFL and NBA reinforce the about that life mentality that will likely cost to leave his freedom, and to leave his financial fortune. American culture is so toxic at the moment that it won't surprise me if the NFL, Fox Sports, and Amazon play Snoop Dogg's Murder Was the Case as intro music for to Tlaib. That's my fire. Uh, and that will be the, mas- the basis and the nature of our discussion today uh, here on Fearless TJ, I'm going to have you invite you in first, uh, and then we'll we have Dave via Skype. We'll have Dave join us here shortly. But TJ, I want to just start with you, and 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 d- the the point, the the mindset, the what I'm trying to point out is with myself and others we all want to adopt these identities and i don't think we calculate the consequences of adopting a negative identity and and i related to me calling myself big sexy and and just embracing the identity of being oversized and full of sexual lust and i had to live up to that i had to be gluttonous i had to hang out in strip clubs i had to Hmm. chase women that I had no intention of marrying. I look at a lot of these young athletes. They all wanna walk around and pose as gangsters. And now you have to live up to that. And that's why this show and the message we're trying to get out is like, if you adopt the identity of Christ and being an image bearer of Christ, now you have to live up to those expectations and those expectations actually will bring out
3: the best in you. And there is grace when you don't live out those expectations. There's not grace when you don't live up to the expectations of the gang that you're in, right? Jesus said, you're not going to be able to do this perfect, and I got you. And so this is why when you try to live out your Christian life, you have someone who's already done it perfectly for you. So you know what it is. And when you you falter, you've got friends around you that say, let's get you back on track. But we're not holding your faults against you. There's something... um, aaron hernandez is a guy that had an opportunity to get out of this mess he grew up his his father died when he was just a young kid he joined i don't know if he was officially in a gang but up in connecticut he was about that life right went down to florida and got away from it and the worst thing that ever happened to him is he went to new england an hour from his hometown in connecticut and went right back into that because it sucks you in And, and i don't know why the rest of the country celebrates this. I don't know why we don't celebrate the football players that got out of that mess and said, that's not the life you want to be in. I'm telling you kids, don't go join that life. Some people do it out of desperation. Cause they say, listen, nobody else is taking care of me. These other guys in the gang will take care of me for this price, but you got to get out of it. And when you had, I think Aaron Hernandez signed a $40 million contract and then he went and murdered somebody for whatever the reason was. Um, that there's a pull to it and the culture is at fault as much as the kids are or the you know, 25-year-old kids because they're celebrating the football players who've gotten out try to act like the rappers instead of trying to act like the Tony Dungys, who have said that's not the life anybody should be about. We're children of God and this is who we're going to be and I'm going to act that out and encourage you to be that way.
2: Uh, let's go out to uh, Idaho and bring in Dave Shannon. Uh, Dave and I had an interesting conversation this morning about all of this. Dave was on the show on Monday when we first started talking about it. Uh, Dave, welcome back to the show. And, and again, the reason why this story is so important is I think we can get at, attack issues that are affecting the entire American culture, but it, it's most acute, I think, within black culture where there's a lot of single par- parent a lot of single absentee fathers, things like that. Uh, but I, I, the, the conceit of this show is that, like, hey, you're better off adopting a Christian identity and trying to live up to those expectations. And and I think this story gets at that. And and I'm I'm I've been sitting here all week shocked at how the rest of the media. Is doing its best to ignore all of the ancillary angles and issues that this story brings to light. There's little league culture to examine. There's, you know, all of this misplaced anger and violence associated. And and then just like Akib Talib, when we, yesterday when I'm interviewing all these guys and they're talking about, he's the guy that could have de-escalated this. Instead, he's the guy that sparked it. There's so many things to talk about as it relates to this issue, and I'm disappointed that I I am sincerely. I don't wanna be covering this story alone. This needs to be shouted from the rooftops, but it doesn't seem like other media outlets want to address this at all.
0: Jason, it this this all started for me Monday too. I saw the the news story of this and I looked at it and I was like, man, that's sad. But then Monday, as you were breaking down um, Hickman's sister, along with what happened with him two years later, it hit me pretty hard. And then when you brought on the coaches to talk about the story, when I'm watching news, that's what I do for a living. I watch news and media, I'm watching all of it. I'm watching all sorts of different type of communication of what's happening in the news and social justice and everything that everybody's talking about on all the news channels, 12 to 15 different shows a day. And so I'm always observing myself as I'm watching this. Like, is this good content? Why is it good content? And as I was watching yesterday, I started noticing, like, this was hitting a different nerve in me. This was, this was touching something that it hasn't been touching in a long time. And I realized as I was observing it, oh, this is journalism. I, I haven't had that taste in my mouth in a long time. Like, I haven't enjoyed that feature in news in a long time. And it was you telling the story of what was really going on. It was a restoration it felt like of the fourth estate where you have you know we got these four different states that Edmund Burke talks about. you have the um, aristocracy or people who are um, uh, with, uh, a nobility and or you have and then you have the clergy, the church is supposed to be a part of that. and then you have the common man but then there's one more estate that's the freedom of the press. And the press is the one that makes sure that all of these other states communicate and know what's going on inside of each other. And it holds all of it together. And when the press or journalism breaks down, then there's no communication and there's no observation of truth of what's happening in these situations. And watching yesterday's show for – I hadn't seen in a long time – I saw the truth of what was happening, what was going on inside of a community, inside of our our people, because you're saying, look right here, this is what's going on. And I noticed that all of the things that the social justice movement and the left try and get me to have this care for, this, this virtue signaling that they produce, all of the emotion that they try and get me to have for a situation that isn't true, I had all of those sympathies yesterday in that story. And it was because it was true, it was because it was real, and it was a part of a community that I care so deeply about. And I noticed, like, man, if we had more of that, we would be looking at the real problem, the real issues, and come and say, oh, here is the antidote for the real situation. But if the fourth estate, the journalistic... Uh, the journalism that is giving us all this other trash, if they're telling us to look other places, we're never going to apply a true remedy to the real problem. And, Jason, I was just so overwhelmed yesterday by by that show. Everybody needs to see it. Everybody needs to share it. And everybody needs to be talking about this case because what you did was say, guys, look at this. And then, look, there's a lot more underneath this that is making this pus come up to the top. And if we don't start doing that, if we don't have that type of journalism, Jason, we are going to fall apart as a nation. We are falling apart as a nation. So thank you for that yesterday, man.
2: Well, and the reason and I don't know how long and maybe through completion, maybe for the next 10 years, I'll be talking about this issue. I, I don't know, because there is so much to address, even about there's a crisis of fatherhood in America that's most acute in the black community. And so as you listen to those coaches, many of them were fathers. Uh, Mike Hickman was a father. And so a group of fathers trying to, and I think Kerry Lewis, the head coach, he called those nine-year-old kids babies. And so a group of fathers coming together, trying to shepherd some nine-year-old babies in a sport, show them some discipline or whatever, and I'm listening and going. Well, hold on. These fathers can't get together and shepherd these kids in a peaceful environment. There's so much tension between the fathers that in the game before Mike Hickman was killed, there was a fight and a scuffle, and uh, allegations that a gun was drawn or flashed at that point. And so there, there's, in order to fix the problem, there's a problem within black men that has to be fixed first. And this is what so frustrates me about the mainstream media, their refusal to address situations like this. We think the first step is addressing a problem with law enforcement. And, and that's not, I, I say it time after time and time again, the first law enforcement officers of every human being should be mom and dad. And once, once we take mom and dad away as officer friendly number one, and then we turn them over at 14, 15, 16, 20 years old, 25 years old, to be policed by people who aren't mom and dad, don't expect good results. And and so if we don't correct this fundamental problem where dads and men can come together and work together in harmony without all this tension that could turn violent, we're never gonna get a solution. And and to your point, uh, and I'll, I'll let you have a final comment Uh, And then we got to move on. But to your point, the fundamental founding of this country, Thomas Jefferson, knew the importance of the fourth estate, knew the importance of the media. He said he'd rather have a free press than government because his belief was if you tell the people the truth, they'll make good, sound decisions about what to do. The media no longer tells people the truth. It tells all of these little white lies or half-baked lies. Uh, cur- they tell little kernels of truth. They never want to address the whole truth, or they just flat-out lie to us. And and so uh, this is why our country is breaking down.
0: Uh, Jason, I hope that every news station, every journalist, everyone who is inside of this industry watches yesterday's show. Sometimes they luck up on it and they'll it just falls in their lap. But they need to actively go out and find the stories, tell the stories. Matter of fact, they need a reformation inside themselves to even know what truth is. You know, that that's another thing. They don't the, the media is just as messed up as the people. So we need some redeemed journalists who know how to investigate it, ask the question. It was amazing watching you ask the question and letting them tell the story. And not feeding it. And then we started finding out more that there was things that were escalating throughout the whole day. And it made me think that as I was listening to the head coach talk, it made me think how important it is that I understand myself, especially people who have been have not been treated consistently as being made in the image of God in America. It's important that I remember that I want to have an extra dose of humanity for people who have not been treated a particular way, have had broken homes and families, and extend to them the kind of love and grace and respect when I meet them, talk to them with that way, expect them to act respectful towards me, and then show them what that looks like. And so it just made me think about our humanity and how we as Christians and we as men, black men, when we see each other particularly, hey, brother, how you doing? Good to see you. And and I don't care if he's got his pants hanging down or whatever. Show that man, engage that man a- as a man and expect him to act like that and return that same thing and reach out to him. Because you're right, Jason, if we don't reach, we can, we're reaching the kids, but we have to have an environment for those kids to grow up in and have and learn respect, too. So we have mm-hmm. to be able to start discipling both and the kids and the other guys who haven't been treated as men as well.
2: Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, let me take care of a little business with uh Our sponsor, Nugenics. Feeling a little less like your old self? Getting older definitely changes your body. As men age, our body naturally loses free testosterone. It happens to every man, and it can make it more difficult to stay in shape and be active. Maybe you don't have time to work out, but want the energy and body you once had. Wouldn't it be nice to have the energy to counter the negative physical effects of aging? Nugenics Total T Testosterone Booster contains testophen which has been validated in five clinical studies shown to boost free testosterone levels in men. Because Nugenics Total T boosts free testosterone, that the aging process robs, you'll feel stronger, leaner, with more energy and drive, and more passion too. Your partner will notice the difference. Nugenics Total T is the number one selling testosterone booster at GNC, and it can help re-energize your life to help you get back to the powerful, confident, Good looking warrior you used to be. Now get a complimentary bottle of Nugenix Total Tea when you text Fearless to 231231. Text now and get a bottle of Nugenics Thermo, their most powerful fat incinerator ever, with key ingredients to help you get back into shape fast, absolutely free. Text Fearless to 231231. Text Fearless to 231231. Uh, Royce White, thanks. to go out to minneapolis or i don't actually i don't think royce is actually in minneapolis because he's in the big three playoff championship and i believe he may be in dallas or some other city but we want to bring royce white into this discussion uh, former uh, first round pick in the nba uh, about to be a champion in the big three uh, he he runs in that athletic world still to this day i think royce is only 30 years old Big Three is fronted by Ice Cube, a rapper, and so we, we don't want to, from any of these issues, and, and welcome, perhaps Royce and, uh, Royce and I have not talked, perhaps Royce has a different perspective and point of view on this uh, than I do. But Royce, I, I, I just want to start here and ask your thoughts on my contention that too many professional athletes want to portray themselves as Gangster rappers, or tough guys, or thugs, rather than uh, portraying themselves as some of the most blessed human beings on the planet, they get to play a game for lots of money, and get to bless their family and take care of their family, uh, and and so I Teddy I read Teddy Bridgewater's IG post where he complained about this. Uh, do you see the same things that? teddy bridgewater suggesting that i see uh, too many athletes interested in projecting themselves as part-time thugs rather than full-time blessed members of society
4: yes Uh, yeah i'll say yes um i think too many black men in general in America are interested in portraying themselves as thugs. And and I'll go back to, to sacred honor, right? We talked a lot about sacred honor this over the course of th- these past couple of months. Um, and, and Malcolm, 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 uh, I, I want to keep going back and reiterate Malcolm X's name. He, he asked a, a question that is just as relevant today as it was then. H- how can we ask? white people or the, the system, the establishment, the government for anything when we, when we still stab each other in the, in, in the back in Harlem. Uh, and that goes for any, in any inner city um, around the country. I think black people as a whole culturally get painted as a monolith, but there's really nothing monolithic about the way that we treat each other. And, and that's the rightful argument that many conservatives, even white conservatives, have made about the black-on-black crime issue. And and the inability or or the, uh, the unjustified uh, manner with which Black people talk about a pro Black movement, but it but it isn't exemplified across Black communities, and we got to rectify that first. Should the athletes, uh, you know, spearhead that? Absolutely, absolutely.
2: And so you're still a, from my eyes, a very young man. Uh, you probably feel all grown up, but you're just thirty years old not that long ago, you were playing in AAU basketball games, and and I think even during your childhood, we had already seen parents and adults start taking these childhood sports more and more seriously, and we've seen the tension amp up at these games. What do you see in youth sports uh, from parents and the desperation there's so so much money now involved with if a kid can make it to college he can get an NIL, NIL deal if he can make it to the pros he can get generational wealth yeah. it, it just seems like youth sports are on a bad trajectory and can we do anything to stop it um, yeah we, we
4: could do something to stop it we could, we could uh, renounce our radical materialism I think this is a a uh, symptom of radical materialism, and and black people have been um, indoctrinated in it. You know, that that is the credo, you could say, a, away from the black people who are Christian, which I mean, there are many black Christians in, in America very connected to the church, but even some of them are, are still radical materialists uh, in many ways. And um, th- this entire pursuit of, of professional sports as a viable way to get out of abject poverty is just a completely wrong approach. It's the completely wrong approach for two reasons. One, there are many other economic strategies that black communities could use in terms of group economics to bring our communities and lift our communities out of abject poverty. The uh, the the pro sports route you could say is one of is one of a, a vain selfish nature really because um, yes professional athletes have the opportunity to make a lot more money than most black people, but none of them make enough money to change the fundamental economic circumstance of black communities at large. And so, you know, to to carry that kind of uh, mantra or or energy or, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, spirit like, well, if I get out, then everybody gets out. When has that ever worked? Who has that worked for? There's no example of that anywhere. You may be able to change a few people's lives in your immediate family, and that's important. um, But I I think the whole thing gets portrayed as, you know, if a black athlete can make it, then, then the black community rises. And that's not true. Often what we see is black, young black men get groomed in the professional sports feeder system, and by the time they make it to real money, real, real money, not a couple million there, a couple million there, but hundreds of millions or a billion dollars, um, they've already sold out. And, and, and most of the time, the black people that, that helped them get there are no longer there to see any economic benefit whatsoever. So it's a, that, that is, a, is a double cross and triple cross of the ages, no
2: doubt. So Royce, you know, playing sports and playing in the Big Three, and and your college career, you you run in that athlete circle, and you run a, in the Big Three. There's a lot of former NBA players that made millions of dollars. When when they start, when when y'all are in a city for two, three, four days at a time, involved in casual conversation, talk about social justice issues. Why don't athletes ever think about, hey, I wonder if we pulled our resources, and you know, you're know, you worth 100, you're worth 200 million, I can't remember, there was an athlete that just pointed this out on one of these podcasts. Uh, maybe it was I Am Athlete or, or something, I can't remember do athletes have a conversation about resources rather than begging ownership or begging the government to do something? Why don't athletes ever move to, hey, I'm worth 100, you're worth 100, we could pool our resources, and because and, whoever pointed this out, he pointed to like three guys that were all basically from the same zip code in California. And they could yeah. have real impact in their communities, if they pull their resources and work together, why doesn't that ever happen?
4: Um, well, well there, there's a there's a, there's a bunch of reasons. Um, one, one, I'll say that. Let's let's separate the scam or the grift that the American government or the establishment has done on the American working class and American people, because that does exist. So there is a rightful criticism for all working class citizens, including black, to have about the scam, let's say the tax scam, number one, that the American government has, has run on, on the American people. Um, but a solution shouldn't be to singularly wait for that, uh, that corruption to end black people could pool their money together, especially black athletes. Uh, I think we don't because although many black athletes are, are portrayed as or propped up as leaders within the black community, and, the, and we are in many regards, but there are leaders within groups of leaders and the leaders within the, within the athlete community have all sold out and, and many of the athletes beneath them take their cue from them in terms of business practice. Um, And and that means that there is a there is an expectation. There is a culture. There is a condition for how people spend their money, invest their money. And oftentimes the the middlemen that that um, that proctor these transactions, big transactions, big financial investments do well to strategically make sure that that black athletes don't come together. I think that's a big piece of it. but also, I think in a Malcolm X, uh, you know, sort of sense, uh, black people don't have a strong desire to come together yet in a real way. We, we don't want to hitch our wagon to each other and really try and lift each other out of our circumstance. There's a part of us that likes to be able to fall back on the crutch of being the victim. Um, and, and I don't say that to say that there are no there is no victimhood in black America for black people or throughout history. There is. We have been victims. But there's a difference between being a victim and always wanting to fall back on that crutch and never taking the responsibility or the opportunity to climb out of it. Um, And you see that. I mean, look, there should have been a black. There should have been the players should have come together already and supported Ice Cube with the big three financially. 100 percent. Just because it's a black owned sports league. It might be the only black owned sports league in the entire Western world, (laughs) Uh, but they have it. They haven't. I I think there are a few people, influential black folks who have helped out. I know Kanye West was involved at one point, I believe. But why do the black players not? And I I say this because in 2015, after Donald Sterling said that in Israel, black Jews are treated like dogs. um, I called the union because there was a lot of conversation about what was going to take place after that. Now, at the time, I was already estranged from the NBA. And as such, I was estranged from the NBA community, be it the players, coaches and, and the people on our side. But I still called and, and asked the question and made the suggestion anyway. Why don't we start our own league? And, you know, what the union, what the person at the union told me, because black people are still very comfortable with white people in charge. And at the time, uh, uh, you know, my immediate response was, man, that sounded racist. But after about five minutes of sitting on the phone with him, I had to admit that he was right black people are still much more comfortable with white people in charge especially in the professional sports world especially in the nba and the argument that's always made about the nba players not starting their own league which they definitely should uh the, the middleman fit the 50 percent middleman split for the nba owners is ridiculous they don't bring that level of expertise to the game they, they are middlemen all of them are middlemen and they're and they're using their position their early position entry into the industry to, to wait for an ascending, appreciating uh, asset. That's it. The, the players evolved the game. And even more so, the communities they came from, unheralded, unsung heroes uh, in communities that coach pee wee teams that work with kids every single day uh, for them to, you know, work on their craft and get to that high level, those are the people that actually evolved the game and brought in expertise that we never see, that that we never pay for, Um So the the reason why they haven't started it, and this was the reason that was given back then, um, who could, uh, who's going to, um, who's going to give us the deal, right? Who's going to do the deal? Who can do the, the NBA office or the NBA uh, owners are the only people that have the relationships um, to broker a deal, a TV deal that was done recently. And I said to him, no. No, let the players walk out. Let the players walk out and opt to create their own league. Somebody will show up and, and provide uh, and, and see the opportunity to get in on the new league. And all of them were afraid to. You know why? Because they're all looking out for self. So this whole facade that there's some brotherhood or pro-black movement, there's a pro-black movement. Uh, it's, it's just still in the side of the mountain. It needs to be dug out and it needs to be refined and polished.
2: Man, you, you said a mouthful that I want to react to uh, particularly as it relates to the Big Three and Ice Cube, and and why ball players haven't been more supportive of him and that league, because basically it's the senior circuit. It's it's a retirement league for former NBA players, and so it would really be an investment in yourself. And right. so let's say your NBA career ends at 35. Ice Cube right. is building a league that from 35 to 43, you can earn additional money in retirement. And, and so I, I, I guess, you know, one of the re- reluctances, I, I would think is, you know, Ice Cube's a rapper, what's his expertise in, in basketball? But, but I connected to this, because as soon as you said that, I was thinking like, Isaiah Thomas is one of the smartest people I've ever met in professional athletics. And Isaiah Thomas, I'm talking about the old Detroit Piston, not the younger version, because I I don't know the younger version, so I'm not speaking bad about him. But Isaiah is someone I have an immense amount of respect for. And I've seen his reputation savaged by corporate media. And I, I reject virtually all of it. And, and this connects to the whole Aqib Tlaib and the whole conversation I'm having in terms of, you're one of the smartest athletes I've ever met. And I've seen corporate media reject you and try to cast you off to the side. And again, I see corporate media embrace the guys that carry themselves like Aqib Talib while rejecting a Royce White and an Isaiah Thomas and, and I see us always falling for, oh, well, the New York Times says Isaiah Thomas is a bad guy and he sexually harassed some woman and he's one of the worst people in the history of the NBA. Stay away from Isaiah Thomas. Yeah. It's a joke to me. I've seen the media. Again, we've been, we had a whole story, show last week about Mother Jones and just the constant Royce White attack and, and so it, it's almost like the system rejects the intelligent black athlete and glorifies the ignorant ones. And yeah. I don't understand why we can't recognize and see that.
4: Well, let, let's, let's say this first. Um, is that not a sign of systemic racism in some regard? And in the conservative movement, there's a huge rejection um, of the idea that systemic racism is even a real thing. And last week we talked a bit about Candace Owens, and I think Candace Owens, while I, I think she has the opportunity to be a, a powerful force for good in America and for the American people, um, she is one of those right-wing pundits who who would say, uh, you know, systemic racism isn't a real thing. But when you talk about a mainstream media that is dominated uh, by white liberals, let's be specific, uh, that do make the decision to glorify um, a certain type of black celebrity and, and try and uh, uh, denounce or demean another type of black public figure, isn't that the evidence of, of systemic racism? And, and I would say that, well, of course it is. Now, the, the question is, Still, what culpability do we as black people in America have to follow these faux idols or these false idols? And we have a lot of culpability in that. But both things is, exist at the same time. Black people in this country have more false idols than, they, than, than, than we know what to do with. And, and those false idols were given to us by white liberals, by and large. And you got your rhinos and conservatives that sit on the sideline and and tie into the grift. And and they're in on the racket as well. But 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 all of it is a crisis of leadership. And and our leaders have been selected for us. And the the athletes that they give a a real a, a real substantial amount of money to were brought up and conditioned in a culture that says. Renounce your community. The whole point for you to be successful as an athlete is to leave your community. You want to get out. You want to move to the suburbs. And, and, and that was another profound statement that Malcolm X made is, why are we talking about where we can run to as black people? How about we make Harlem a place that people want to live? Right. So we just got these things all the way backwards in, in, in black communities. Let's make let's make uh, the inner city of Detroit a place we want to live. Let's make Minneapolis, the north side of Minneapolis, a place we want to live. The south side of Chicago, uh, 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 South Central, uh, uh, you know, Miami, Dade County, uh, New York City, uh, Harlem, Philly. Uh, let's make these places a place where black people want to live. But that's not our approach. Our approach is let's live in the sin and chaos until the, the lottery or miracle happens where we can escape to the suburbs and, and, and be a new person. And that's just backwards. That's ass backwards.
2: Yeah, it, it, you're talking about a cast-down-your-bucket mentality that Booker T. Washington promoted is, you know, build something right where you're at that makes you happy. So my father lived it out, uh, and it's, it's why I ended up breaking away from corporate media and trying to build something here and trying to build it with people I respect, share values with. Don't care all that much about color, mostly care, you know, believer, shared values, that don't even have to be a believer, just shared values. Uh, but I, I I do want to do it with black people, because I think it's important that we see that and model that and have that uh, there for us. Uh, and and we we just don't right now, uh, man, I, Royce, and I could and sit I, here and, and go ahead. I'm sorry.
4: Yeah, and I want to say one last thing, because I, I think this is one of the most fundamental fundamentally important things that the America First movement embraces. When any black person steps up and says that they want to put an emphasis on on the rise of, of black America, it's not to create a, a, a separatist country, right? A, 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 you know, I said black nationalism a few times on the show, and I've said it publicly. I say that black nationalism is, is on the road to nationalism. And because of the history of black nationalism being sort of, or in some cases, explicitly anti-white, the, the, the white conservative movement in America, hears black nationalism, and they go, whoa, 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 hold on. But the, 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 black America is a sort of ball and chain on this country. For a number of reasons, economically uh socially, culturally spiritually but but mostly politically and and so if if the if the rise of black america if, if building black America up uh isn't an emphasis for some black people who can go into those communities, this country is doomed and I think a lot of a lot of my brothers and sisters in, in the in the conservative movement um, that, that are white um don't really believe that a, that a, an ascendance of black america is necessary to save this country steve bannon does and and me and steve have had that conversation a lot of times that's how he became a mentor of mine and that's why he continues to support me because working class blacks and latinos will have to come into the america first fold in order for us to take this country back from globalists and there really are only two classifications globalists and nationalists but there are people out here uh, out out in the world and in our country who identify themselves as a certain thing. And there are many people who identify themselves as black. Race is a thing. It's not the most important thing, but it is a thing, and it's a thing we have to address. And black communities have a culture that has been built over a couple hundred years, and it needs to be rectified. So just what you said is, you know, and myself as well. I'm not um, black black or nothing. Um, but I do feel a certain obligation and duty to the community that I grew up in and the, and the, and the, and the issues that plagued that community. And I think that should go for all people everywhere. It's not, to me, I'm not offended when a white person goes, you know what, uh, we need to deal with the depression and, and the white male demographic. Why? White males commit suicide two to three times more than any other uh, demographic in our country. That doesn't offend me. I don't think a white person is racist or only thinking about white people for them to do that. They're doing what's immediate to them. And if we all do what's immediate to us, uh, a rising tide raises all boats.
2: I want to piggyback off your point because I've actually, for the better part of five to seven years, have been making that argument publicly, privately, speeches to people that, look, the only way to save America is to reinstate uh, the black man as a voice of moral conscience for this country. If you really understand the history of America and the role and, and that message, regardless of who I make it to, I've seen very few people reject it. Maybe the first time they hear it, but once they hear it and, uh, and you, you lace it with uh, some American history facts, people get that instantly. I don't see the message being rejected, I actually see it being understood, and I think that's why the left is so aggressive in its attacks on the black man. I think it's why they have completely emasculated, run him out of his own home, away from his own family, uh, replaced him with a welfare check, replaced him with the matriarchy, because they understand that's the way you bring down America. You emasculate America's traditional moral compass. Uh, you detach the black community from God, from a biblical worldview. You can bring this whole country to its knees, and it, it's happening right before our eyes. And I, I've seen many people, when they hear it, they respect it and understand it. And, and maybe they respect it and understand it because they know that, that I'm not threatened by the fact that white people take pride in the success of this country. They have every right to. I, I'm— <laughs> I'm saying that we have a right to feel that exact same pride. We were instrumental in the building up and the greatness of this country. It hasn't been explained to us by the liberal teachers in these school systems, but but we are just as responsible. And that's why when I hear a white man talk about how much he loves America, it doesn't offend me, doesn't scare me, doesn't, doesn't make me jealous. I feel that same pride because it couldn't have happened without my ancestors either. And and so the other point I I want to that I briefly forgot that you made the point, the thing that I have seen frustrate, particularly leftists, is I certainly believe in the reality of racism. The problem the establishment has with me is that I point the finger at the real racist and that's That's the left. And, and, and they have devised a system of racism yes. that crushes black people. They're, they're not lying about systemic racism. They're lying they about who's right operating person.
4: it. They just don't have the right person. You're right. Yeah. And, and so my, yeah. my, my yeah. point though is that I do see, uh, uh, you know, some, some echoes on the right, on the grassroots level. Of this reg- this uh, this boomerang effect that's happening in the conservative movement, where the liberal establishment, the mainstream media, has hijacked the word racism and, and the issue of racism, and wielded it against conservatives so much that now the the rebound uh, uh, default is let's just stop talking about racism altogether, and that's and and that's the absolute wrong pulse or or, or approach. We need to, like you said, talk about what the real racism is and who the perpetrators are. Uh, we we cannot let the liberal establishment bully us emotionally into surrendering or conceding any ground in in, in the dialectical uh, uh, conver- or or the conversation. Uh, and and we see that even with diversity, right? You you see that with diversity again is another another word that's been uh, weaponized so much that every time somebody hears it now they go. No, diversity of thought is probably one of the best things a a society could have. That's actually what you want is a diversity of of thought, a diversity of belief, even a diversity of people. Um, But but we've allowed them to take these words. And now they're like they're like boogeymen. They're like, you know, they're like little boogeymen to the to to the real America first patriots. And I hear it often and see it all the time because I talk about black people. But I really believe if black people step into their proper role, we have a shot at saving this country from the globalists. A shot.
2: Royce, uh, what city are you in and when when are the big three championship games?
4: Uh, I'm currently in Tampa Bay still. we're, we're still reeling from the victory this last weekend that was that was a thriller if you got to watch it it was it was one of the most entertaining basketball games I think I, I've ever been a part of but that i've I've watched as well I watched it back a few times already um but we we play in Atlanta for the championship on Sunday um and uh you know the it, it, it the, the big three doesn't get the credit the credit it deserves. Ice Cube doesn't get the credit he, he deserves uh, for, for attempting to do this and putting his reputation on the line to, to keep this league alive and going. Uh, it's been five seasons and, and we've proved a lot. I think the proof of concept is there that this this format of basketball, this style, this time frame during the summer after the NBA works, I think it could get bigger and, and go further. Um, I, I continue to hope that people rally around Ice Cube, um, but but even him is another example. You know, as soon as he said, What's in it for us to vote Democrat? Everybody was calling him a traitor and a sellout. And the other black bourgeoisie sellouts that are really in bed with the real racists uh, tried to tried to uh, you know take Ice Cube out. They tried to, to assassinate his character. But he'll, here he is, a black-owned business, surviving uh, in, in a sea full of sharks of other corporate people who don't want him to succeed. And the NBA is one of them. I mean, think about the NBA saying black and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but think about the NBA saying black lives matter. Think about the NBA saying black lives matter. But behind the scenes, they want to sabotage a league that services the retired black players. I mean, you know, these are the this is the, the overlay for the underlay. This is the bait and switch. These are the manipulation tactics that are played in the public relations of a chameleonic, Organization like the NBA, Adam Silver, Mark Tatum, all of them are globalists. They're sellouts. They're shields for the CCP. And and at bottom, they're really racist. Okay, they they like the ability to stand over black people and manage and manage uh, uh, um, manage our talent, manage our our value, to broker our value, to broker our skill and ability. Uh, but they don't want us to have any ownership. And, and what's worse is they don't want most American citizens having have any ownership regardless of their race. Uh, but, but they really like us to be the mules, and, and, and I see that very, very clearly. And I think Ice Cube does as well. Um, so, you know, th- this championship is going gonna, is gonna to mean a lot because it was hard coming through the pandemic uh, with the big three um, you know, it, it, was, it was hard this season even, coming out of the pandemic. You build up that momentum as a league, and then the pandemic hits. You can't have the same, uh, you know, uh, format and setup and promotion that you did before, so, so people fall off and lose track. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be fun on Sunday for sure. It's probably going to be sold out, CBS Live, uh, you know, prime time, and, and I'm looking to add a, a championship to, to my own uh, trophy case.
2: Thank you, Royce, and good luck. We'll be watching on Sunday. Uh, get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com. Uh, TJ, I you know, haven't heard from you in a bit. What did you think of my conversation with Royce? Anything strike you?
3: He's bright, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> you, could, you could spend a day on each one of Royce's ideas. I mean, he, there's a lot to marinate on. One one point of clarification I would like from you. Um, you guys are talking about pooling money together yes. to go fix communities. My first thought was, I think money's 5% of the problem, maybe less. I think dads are the problem, I think families are the problem, I think not being there. So I think you could give a billion dollars to a community, and they're going to have all the same problems. No, I
2: don't believe in giving. Oh, well. I believe in building. And so, men need jobs. They're, they're meant to work and to be providers, mm-hmm. in my view. Sure. And, and uh, the corporate culture that we have now doesn't work for, in my view, any real man, regardless of color, but it's really hostile in my view to uh, the Christian heterosexual black man. Mm. I think he is the lowest man on the totem pole in corporate America. And so what, 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 what we need in black communities are businesses run by black heterosexual men uh, and you need banks to give people small business loans. We need more black entrepreneurs so that black men, because again what they have financially emasculated many black men. Their wife, girlfriend, baby mama is the primary breadwinner and uh, that man is he's gonna be out talked by his wife or baby mama and now he's out earned by her and so he's completely emasculated and outside the house, outside the the sphere of influence and so what I'm suggesting is again there's reasons why people start banks uh, so they can control the money, control communities. and Everybody wants to talk about the Tulsa massacre in the 1920s, 30s, whatever it happened. And, and the, they think the story is, oh man, racist people tore down Black Wall Street in Tulsa. I think the story is, how could Black people a hundred years ago build Black Wall Street and we're pretending like we can't do it now? Mm. How could a hundred years ago, in those racist times, segregation, Jim Crow books on the law bar, they built an economic system that per, that allowed families to exist, men to support their families, all of that, and we think we can't do it now? That's a joke to me. And so, no, I, I don't, you know, I, the same model that I'm trying to execute here, and again, I, I don't have some color-based litmus test on who works with me on this show. Obviously, uh, Christian over here and Dave or, or whatever. But I am trying to platform black men in families, providers, married, kids, and and create a safe space where uh Black men that are heterosexual and Christian, traditional values, they got a talk show that supports their worldview. Uh, and so that, that's what I mean. I, I don't, dumping a bunch of money and charity, no. Putting black men on their feet, then, you know, once you come in, you come in with a bank, you come in with a church, and you provide jobs and God, now you got a chance to change a culture. Uh, because at one time, again, that's why I keep talking about the study of American history, black men were connected to their families, and they were connected to churches, and the black family was doing quite well. Mm. All of that has been torn down. Mm -hmm. And sitting around waiting on the government to fix it, or to apologize for it, or to, uh, it's just not going to happen. We have to do it.
3: Or ripping the government when they try to step in with Tony Dungy when you get $70 million to bring dads back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The one other thing, and this is where I think you present this better than anybody else I've heard, and that is taking pride in American history. The reason you don't hear pushback from white people when you say that is because the, I'll, I'll speak for me instead of all white people, but you explain it to me, and it is we did this together as opposed to, you have a group of white people that'll say, you guys were slaves, you didn't do anything. And you got a group of black people that says, we were slaves, we did everything. And what you're saying is, is there was a lot of white people that contributed to the success of this country. And so did we, we should both be very, very proud of that. And if you read about the Revolutionary War, you see how instrumental black people were in that war. We maybe never become a country without black people fighting in that war, even though for a time they weren't allowed to. Uh, uh, Salem Poor. There was 14 white people who signed a letter that said, "If not for that guy, we're all dead in the Battle of Bunker Hill." And they made him Commander in Chief because of it. Dude wasn't even allowed to fight at the time, and he came in and saved everybody's lives. And they made a whole unit. I think it was the first you, Rhode Island, so I can't. And it's like, and that was the best unit of all of them. It was a group of all black men. And so it's like, if you read the history, it's easy to acknowledge that this all happened. We can acknowledge that black people were a massive Piece of American history and that should be celebrated. It's just that there's a group of black people that i tell you, and you white people really didn't do anything and you should give us the credit we want. So when explained the way that you did to Royce and he felt it was so obvious and so did I, that's the unifying message because that's the truth.
2: All right, uh, Virgil Walker, back. These birds are our religion, regrets, and our
1: decisions. We all want to go to heaven with freedom. It's my obligation, I hate discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. You ready?
3: Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy.
5: we are doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes!
3: Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall Guy.
0: That's what the poster said.
3: See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy.
0: Trying to make out? Nope. Because I don't either.
3: It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking.
0: Yeah. Okay.
3: <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read at PG 13.
2: All right, welcome back. Uh, let's bring in uh, Virgil Walker. Let's roll out to uh, Georgia. Douglasville, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, and bring in uh, Virgil Walker from uh, G3 Ministries to help uh, further our discussion about Akib Tlaib. And Virgil, I know you'll have some thoughts here on my contention that uh, we've handed young people, and particularly young black men, this false gangster identity that they're supposed to embrace and, and my contention is like, you, you got to be careful about what identity you adopt. It's going to lock you into a set of behaviors that may end up destroying your life. That's what I think has happened here with to Tlaib. His identity as the toughest guy in every room is what sparked a brawl that ended up leading his brother to shooting and killing someone. And so now his brother's probably going to have to go to jail and lose his freedom and to Tlaib Eventually, he's going to lose a bunch of money because he's going to be sued, I believe, uh, for sparking this deal if he's not eventually charged criminally for sparking this deal. But but that's why I just keep promoting like, you know, why aren't we promoting to young people an identity in Christ that will lock you into a set of behaviors that will uh, enhance your life
5: rather than destroy your life? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, Jason. I think I think you're right on with that. Here, here's the reality. As, as I was growing up as a kid, um, you know, I, I wasn't a sports guy. I wasn't an athletic guy. I know that's hard to believe if you look at me. I know you, I know it's difficult for anybody to believe that, that 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 that's not the case. Well, the reality is, I, I love to read. I love to to you know to study. I enjoyed making good grades. But even as a young black male in school, uh, I was made fun of. Uh, by other blacks for the way that I talked, uh, the fact that I wanted to make good grades, uh, the fact that, you know, I, I thought the things that we were learning in school were really, really cool. There was a young lady that I was interested in. I remember this in junior high school. Uh, she came to the school and she was she was from New York. And, uh, she, you know, she she was everybody, everybody you know, someone is brand new. Everybody's looking at her and I'm kind of checking her out, trying to figure out, you know, how how I'm going to make my move. And uh, you know, I talked to her. Her thought was, I was too corny. Uh, I was, I was not black enough, Uh, and 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 that I had to, you know, I had to figure out how to how to talk, you know, a certain way and do things a certain way. All all of that to say that 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 starts for black kids at a very very young age, Uh, and and it's and it's ingrained in us. So nowadays we have hip hop culture. You've got you know the the young people are are watching the sports. Their sports heroes in the NFL. Uh, they're connecting that with, with what they're listening to from a rap standpoint. Uh, and all of it is, is in an effort to try to be something that we're not. Uh, we, we, we're, we're pretending for, for a culture, uh, Jason, that prides itself on being authentic and real. Uh, black folks, for the most part, are, are some of the most inauthentic. Uh, as it pertains to black culture, as it pertains to embracing black culture and black identity and what it means to, quote-unquote, be black, uh, rather than being yourself, uh, being who God created you to be, following the things that, that God would have us to follow so that we can live a life uh, that that that's prosperous, that's beneficial. Um, those are the kinds of things that we need to embrace.
2: Virgil, you said a mouthful, and, and so it's provoked me to ask. Uh, and we don't need a. What, what, what year? I'll ask it this way. What year did you graduate high school?
5: I, got, I, I graduated high school in 87.
2: Oh, wow. Oh, so we are close to the same age. And I can relate uh, to that experience. Not that I made great grades, but what I can relate to, I remember in third grade, we're walking home. Uh, from school, school 83, uh, in Indianapolis. Uh, and we were teasing, not me, but a group of kids, were teasing the kids that made straight A's, or made A's and B's. And I remember uh, people said, man, you're trying to be white. And, and, yep. and I, I'll never forget it. I, I can take my mind back to that moment right now that we were at school 83 were living in an environment where you were made fun of for making good grades. The next year, we move out to a working class suburb, uh, a predominantly white school. My mother takes a second job and moves us out of the hood and never heard that again. Never heard anyone get made fun of for making good grades. And, and it, it speaks to this, like, this toxic culture we've handed uh, black kids that white kids aren't burdened with. I never heard at Lakeside Elementary or Stony Brook Junior High School, I never heard anybody uh, associate good grades with being white. I heard it associated with being smart, uh, and people wanted to be smart, and wanted to be successful, uh, but somehow in the black community, we associated good grades, talking proper English, reading books, things like that, as being white and selling out. And and I, I just, how did that happen? And how did we allow that to happen?
5: Yeah. I don't understand. I I, I don't either. Here, here's the here's the even you know more tragic aspect of that. Because I was so interested in, in this young lady and into uh, connecting with the quote unquote culture, I, I started making bad grades. Uh, I started, you know, not not trying to you know, trying to figure out what was the latest slang that I needed to talk in order to fit in. Uh, so, again, that, that middle school, high school time frame is a, is a very pivotal time for young people. And they're looking for how, how do I identify? How do I connect? Uh, that was what I thought I needed to do. I, I thought I needed to, to, to sound different, to talk different, uh, to respond differently, especially if I wanted the affections uh, of, of this young lady. And so, yeah, I, I, I did all those things. So I absolutely can identify with everything you're saying.
2: What was the key to eventually figuring out the foolishness
5: of that and just being more comfortable with who Virgil was? Yeah, I, for, for, for me, really, to be honest with you, it, and, and I know this is going to sound crazy, but for me, right about my sophomore year, uh, a, a dear brother named John Lindsay, uh, white guy, hung with me and two other black guys. John Lindsay has a serious uh, time over the course of a summer uh, away, and he comes back and is very serious about his faith, uh, so much so that you know he's bringing his Bible to school. I'm looking at him thinking, man, what in the world are you doing? You know, you, you, you're messing up our cool. Uh, he brought his Bible to school. He's sitting there talking to us about his changed and transformed life, uh, that, that he had made a decision to follow Christ. Uh, my thought was, man, this is a phase uh, that, you know, it'll last a couple of months and then he'll be back to normal. Uh, the reality was he, it, it wasn't a phase. He got very serious about his faith. He was answering questions uh, as people came up at the, at the lunch table. I'm sitting there with them going, dude, what in the world? But but as I'm watching him, I'm watching him settle into his faith and then recognize over the course of some time and that I was a sinner who was in need of a savior. And all of these fake identities that I was trying to hold on to really paled in comparison to the peace that he demonstrated as a result of his relationship with Christ. Uh, So over the course of the over the course of the year, he would share the gospel with me. Uh, and, and I would, you know, go to a Bible study and learn more and more uh, about what it meant to be a true follower of Christ. Uh, once I shed that identity, died to self uh, and, 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 and pick up, pick, you know, picked up my cross and began following Christ, I could care less what anyone thought about me. Uh, it, it was irrelevant to me if you thought I was cool or didn't like me or any of that. So that for me, that was the catalyst uh, to say, again, that, that you know, I'm not worried about what others think. I'm going to follow Christ, uh, and if, if they think I'm cool or not, uh, you know, it, it it doesn't really matter. So all, all of those identities that 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 really hit folks, especially in high school and in college, where they're trying to be either, A, the jock or the cool kid or, you know, or whatever, or, or, or the gangster, I, I didn't, I, I really shed, I, I'm thankful to God that that I really was able to avoid a lot of that.
2: So Virgil, you and your wife are raising two or three kids. I've seen a picture.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Three, three children. Two of them are are back in Omaha, young adult children. uh, And then my my youngest son, who's who's still here uh, with us. I say I always tell people to pray for him because now he's got the focus of of two parents on one child rather than two of us Mm. uh, having having to work on three, three different children, you know, all at the same time. But Uh, But, yeah, he's 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 here with us here in, uh, in Douglasville.
2: And then so how are your kids navigating or how are you helping your kids navigate that experience now? Because I think these problems are even worse now than when we were growing up.
5: They, they, they absolutely are. I think it's different for us. And, and again, I had no intention of going this direction with, with this conversation, but I'm happy to do it uh, for, for you, Jason. My, my kids grew up, you know, again, based upon our socioeconomic conditions, they grew up in a, in, in a rather nice area in a nice neighborhood. Again, Omaha, Nebraska. So keep keep in mind, it's a it's an area of the country that's about four percent black. Uh, So not a lot of black kids around for them to engage and and be around. But what I found that was interesting to me, and I had to train them in this, is that as they went to school, Jason, the the, the racism was still real. And here's what it looked like. It looked differently than 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 what you might imagine. They're at a predominantly white school, 98 point, you know, nine percent white. But everything they did was cool. To all of these white kids. So they they were the unique black kid. And if they said, if if they made up a a word, you know, uh, uh, know, hippity-dippity, right? Before the day was out, all of the other kids were saying the same word, right? Why? Because they were identifying my kids as the cool black kids, and they were trying to emulate what they did. Now, the challenge with that was when they came home, I tried to let them know these kids thinking you're cool because of the color of your skin is no different than them thinking you're not cool on the basis of the color of your skin. It's still on the basis of the color of your skin, not who you are as an individual apart from 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 some, you know, some ethnic image that you're trying to convey. And so th- those are the kinds of conversations that we had to have uh, around, you know, around our home.
2: Do you homeschool your kids at,
5: at any point during this time? I did. Uh, when we first moved to Omaha, I uh, homeschooled them for, gosh, about uh, through, through, through middle school. My oldest daughter, we actually home through, homeschooled all the way through high school. Uh, my boys, we homeschooled them through middle school. But by the time it came to high school, uh, I ended up sending them. Uh, to school, mom and, and those boys, uh, you know the the, the the issues that were going on. They really needed, you know, maybe some more structure. And, and I think mom just needed a break. Um, I'll be honest with you, Jason. I, I'm, I'm I'm disappointed that that was the choice that that, that, that I made. And, and and as I led our family. Uh, only because it exposed them to all kinds of issues uh, in 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 ways that that I would never have have allowed had I been there. Both what happens in the school from a standpoint of education, all the issues around gender theory, uh, all the all, all you know all the the issues around race and critical race theory that had to had to you know the conversations we had to have around that. Um, and and again, they're at school more hours of the day than they are at home. And so I had to I had to navigate some. Some difficult waters over the course of that time, and, and would have much rather made sure that they had a, a solid foundation at home uh, before they went off to do anything else.
2: Virgil, I wasn't planning on going down that path, but you know, it Neither came up I. and I wanted to probe you a little bit. <laughs> and so, I, I want to get did you have any? Did I not leave you time to have if there was some thought you had about a, a keep to leave? and the situation with Mike Hickman in, in Dallas and Little League. I wanna give you some time to address that if you'd like.
5: Yeah, I appreciate that. I just noticed, again, I'm, I'm one, I'm grateful that you're taking the time to, to look at these issues. I, I think it's incredibly important uh, for us to do. I think the, the, the light of truth uh, provides two things. One, uh, it provides a, a mirror so that we can examine our own lives, uh, but, but it also provides a window so that we can look and see what's happening in the culture uh, and 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 know what what's going on uh, in the light of truth. Uh, I was looking over the course of this of, of a, the time preparing for uh, our conversation. I noticed that in Chicago there were forty four people shot over the course of the weekend, uh, eight of them shot fatally. Uh, in Detroit there there were twenty six people that were shot, five of them fatally. In, in the previous week the same kind of thing took place. Here in Atlanta, where, where I am, there were 15 people that were shot and four died. Uh, no one is covering this. No one is, is really shining a light on what's taking place uh, in, in predominantly black communities where where black culture, uh, with regard to, to rap and, and, and the, the, the hip-hop and all of the other things that, that we embrace as quote-unquote black culture, uh, you know, are, are being foisted upon us. Uh, we're acting this stuff out, and, and we really need to pause, step back, and look at and examine the, the scriptures. What do the scriptures have to say about how we're living and about what we're doing? Uh, we need to change. We need to turn uh, from the kind of direction that we're headed, uh, and really focused on a right relationship with Jesus Christ.
2: Thank you, Virgil. Did you, have, you looked at okay. Thank you, Virgil.
3: Hmm.
2: Great job. All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit notifications, hit subscribe, leave a comment. You guys know I'll be in the chat tonight. Uh, Pastor Anthony, Pastor Bobby, Tennessee Harmony. I just want, I want a beat, I just want, I
3: want to I
2: just
5: want, I want to I just want.
2: Welcome back. Uh, time for some Tennessee harmony. It's Wednesday, uh, that means Pastor Bobby Harrington, Pastor Anthony Walker are here, and we'll try to have a biblical uh, conversation about akeeb to leave. This will be kind of tough, but I, I, I want to address akeeb to from from a more biblical perspective. So I brought our two experts in, and as we always do before. Uh, We begin the conversation If we, Bobby and Anthony, if you guys would bless our conversation,
6: then we'll get started. God, we commit this time to you and pray that your truth would shine forth.
1: Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to share in this platform uh, your word. We pray that what we say uh, is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And those that hear it will know more about your will and your way. It's in Jesus name we pray.
2: Amen man yeah. uh, so TJ Moe is still here with us and and what I unpacked to uh, Bobby and Anthony uh, yesterday and we talked a little bit about today and my fire starter is my wanting to understand the times that we're living in in terms of and and I've seen this in my own career and frustration and why I'm trying to figure this out and why the issue is important to me is I look at to Tlaib and I look at his background and I look at all the trouble he got in in college and the pros and, and uh, he made his reputation clear that he wanted to be seen as a bad guy and the culture seems to be rewarding that behavior. And, and he immediately gets a, a job broadcasting NFL games on Fox Sports. These are some of the most coveted jobs in all of broadcasting. And then I connected to uh, uh, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, halftime uh, show at the Super Bowl, the biggest stage America has to offer. And, and I even connected to, and again, anybody that watches this show knows I'm no uh, gigantic or much of a Trump critic. But I even like the culture has moved to a place where a large segment of Americans think things are so bad that we need a belligerent bully to be our leader to navigate things because they're that bad. And, and, and it reminds me of, and I said to you all in text, I don't know if any of you have watched the TV show, The Shield. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you've seen, oh, yeah. one of my favorite shows. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. point of The Shield basically was that Vic Mackey, this dirty cop, is the only person who could police mm-hmm. Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And it took a dirty cop to, and I'm like, have is our reality that bad? And so I kind of wondered, what does the Bible say about this time and seeing people that seem dedicated towards wickedness and the culture seems so rewarding of people. I don't remember it being this out of balance in other parts of my lifetime and experience here on earth. So Mm. uh, uh, anyway, if you guys can impart some biblical understanding of the times we live in and the rewards that are being offered for, I don't know, being the bad guy.
6: I'll start the The Bible teaches that the wickedness appears like it's prevailing, like you're describing, but it doesn't prevail in the long run. So uh, what the Bible teaches is we're going to get overwhelmed. It's going to feel like, let's be ungodly because ungodliness seems to be successful. But then the Bible says, just keep watching and you'll see it doesn't prevail. Mm -hmm. So there's a passage that might be helpful. Uh, Psalm 37 says this, and I believe we have it on the screen. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Hmm. You uh, couple that with the entire uh, collection of Psalms starts with this statement. Blessed is the one who does not walk with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the Lord." And it goes on and says, he's gonna have the best life. Mm -hmm. But it's taking the long-term view. It's taking the view of, in most cases, this is what will happen. But in the short term, it can look like wicked people really have it right. I would relate that first scripture
2: not just to individual mans, I would relate it to our culture and society. We've created a culture that rewards wickedness and it will not last for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And the, I would then go to, well, that's predicting the demise of American culture and American society.
1: It, it becomes attractive. Um, I remember growing up, uh, I grew up poor um, and In our neighborhood and in our area, the people who drove the best cars uh, and you would only see a few of these were your wealthy businessmen. But the ones that really had the nice cars were the drug dealers. I mean, Mm -hmm. they had the nice paint jobs, nice rims. I mean, it was all. And so here you are like, man, I could go this way and get a, you know, moderate Lexus. or I could go over this pathway and get The candy coated red paint and and the spinning wheel. So it's like that becomes attractive and that goes to show like, hey, if you really want to be about something, look at these guys. But as the scripture teaches, that's not what takes place in the long run. And I could say even for my life, it bothered me to see that. Uh, I remember when I went to college, I struggled. I'm working three jobs trying to go to college. I'm going to a Christian school. I'm trying to do the right thing in the right way. And I've got, you know, guys I grew up with, they're driving better. They have more money than I do. They seem like they're living better. Like, what's the deal? But over time, now it's those guys may be calling me now for advice, not because I'm special, but because the path of God has led us in different directions. So the scripture's right. But I also look at uh, John 15 and 19. Jesus tells his disciples the world will love its own. And so that pathway that the world glorifies, it will always be lovely to the world. But we were called out of the world. So at some point in our maturation process spiritually, I've got to know that my ultimate reward is not down here. Uh, And Jesus even teaches that to those that want to rob, steal, do whatever it takes to get this down here. That's all you're going to get throughout life. But to those who follow Christ, heaven is our ultimate reward.
2: TJ, before you jump in, I want to follow up on Anthony's statement. And I guess, you know, here I am at 55 and I, I helped raise a cousin, came to live with me for two years in Kansas City when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And uh Josh may be watching the show now. And, and I used to use a very crude analogy with Josh. Uh, you know, I was more a part of the world back then. But it was related to the, the same thing about, like, OK, these guys are spreading out ahead right now at 18, 19 years old. Or I think Josh was 15, 16 or, or whatever at that time. And I was like, but trust me, I, I've seen these guys. It, it happened to me and they flame out really quick. Mm-hmm. And I guess part of the uh, thing that I'm feeling now is they don't flame out really quick. And, and, and it's like, I could point like in real time and Josh and I would have the conversation like, yeah, that guy's got the nice car, but look how he got it. And, and I, I used to be able to point to friends of mine that I mm-hmm. grew up with that had all the nice cars but they ain't living the way I'm living now, Josh at 30 or whatever and and now it just seems like we're when the, it just seems like in I'm waiting on something I, I have to accept it now more on faith than be able to point to like there are severe consequences to adopting an evil and a wicked lifestyle and identity mm-hmm And it's just very frustrating.
1: It's an age old scripture, though, Jason. Uh, What does it profit a man? As Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Uh, At some point, you are losing yourself in order to have this notoriety, this fame, this wealth, etc. And God tells us that if we seek him first, the things that we desire, he said, all these things will be added unto you. When I look back over my path and again, I'm not saying I'm anywhere special. I, I, I'm still on the journey. I'm still walking it. But when I look back at what God has done in my life, the things that I coveted at the time man, I would love that, man, when I get, I'm going to have this as an adult, I could care less now. Like mm-hmm. the, the joys that I have now and knowing that my wife and kids are healthy. Um, our bills are paid. Uh, they're happy. You know, just the simple life. Because all of that other life comes with drama that I'm not looking for. I don't want the, the, the looking over my shoulder. I don't want the it's going to pop off this weekend. You know, at, at the time growing up, man, you know, when you're younger, you want to go to those places where, man, it's live. It's fun. But somebody could get shot that night. I'm not going nowhere where people can get shot. You know, I want to have a good time, a good, clean, fun and the life that God tells us in his word to live, it will be that. Um, the other thing I'll say, r- just real quickly, the problem that you may see though now, why it is seeming prolonged is because, especially in the black community, we call that authentic. So if, if to leave, for example, if he comes in, he plays his position well, he's tough and hard-nosed, et cetera, yeah, that's good. But if he roughs up a guy after the play, now that 's a real one right there. Well, is it real? Is that really the reality that we want our next generation to live through? and that 's not the path for me
3: so as it relates to flaming out pretty quickly, ultimately societies flame out when they go down this. We see this to yeah. most of society It's not just it may not happen in a singular person 's life, or they may get rich and live rich for twenty years before they die, but it 's like. We see that the societies that are dominant over the years last about 200 years, and then they fall when they get corrupt. And so societies do it. Just, it it's not our view of flaming out in time. It may not happen in our lifetime, but it may happen three generations later, four generations later, and then societies go. To your point about, about drug dealers, right, and how they look from the outside about they got the nicest car. That's a $200,000 car coming down the road Mm -hmm. in the hood, right? It's like God's view is so different than ours. It's, it's what Royce talked about. That is, that is radical material materialism, right? And it's like, instead, you can look at that. The single guy that has had to dodge bullets three times a day and is always looking over his shoulder. Do you want to drive that $200,000 car for that? Or do you want to go home to your wife and your kids and know that they're safe and you're you're helping them learn the proper values and you are raising men. So it's like, what is the real, you, you've, you said you've grown into the maturity of, that's the biblical wisdom. Yeah. God sees money as nothing more than a tool. That's right. it. You do away with money tomorrow if you had a different tool. It's not about that. It's, it's the tool to help him further his kingdom. Now, I'm, I'm 31 and I promise you, I've been on the side. I fought. You know even for the last ten years being in the professional realm of of how do I get rich but it's like i 've got a one year old now I want to have a bunch of kids. the crazier the world gets, the more kids that I want. I take the uh the, the great commission seriously, All go right. make disciples of many i 'm not <laughs> trying to make them out of you i 'm trying to literally make my own and so it's a, those are what my values have turned into instead of i don 't need a Uh, you know, maybe I'll get a Tesla someday. I don't need a Tesla. Mm -hmm. I've had a crack in the middle of my windshield for two years, I haven't gotten it fixed. I'd rather, you know, my wife's spending our money on buying clean cleaning products for our kid that don't have toxins in them. That's where we're (laughs) spending our money now. But the thing about it though, I mean, you make valid points, the thing about it, and, and I'm
1: speaking from experience, growing up in poverty you're looking at, man, I'm eating, you know, bologna and crackers. I'm eating, you know, ramen noodles. And this guy is living the life yeah. like, you know, that's man. And so to to some degree, you've got kids that take that path. Mm. There are kids that take a slightly different path into athletics. How many athletes do we hear now that, man, I, I, this was what got me out of the hood? And and sometimes. Athletics and the skills and leadership that it teaches, it does do that. But here's the problem: it takes you out of the hood, but it doesn't take the hood out of you. Only God can transform your heart, your thinking, your mind. So that's where I'm saying, it it, it took growing and it took a lot of faith, as Jason's talking about, to see, uh, I'm good with this baloney. And and every night, you know, and I, every time I mention that I grew up poor. Hey, we always had something to eat, okay? We were well taken care I always had something to wear, always had something to eat. I actually had to find out I was poor by my friends, but <laughs> man, you guys are, but to say that looking at it now in society and now where culture is, it just glorifies the wealth, the fame, the women and the godly path. That's where we have to do a good job. And I'm, I'm thankful for our church. You know, we have a lot of young adults um, that are doing their best to live their best for Jesus. A lot of business owners, to where you know when kids are coming through that may need a job. Hey, you don't have to settle for this, that, and the other. We've got folk here that can you can work for their food truck. You can work for their restaurant. You can work for their, you know, business, and that mindset becomes uh, promulgated as they're making disciples. So that's that's a joy. But I, I can see what you're saying, Jason, about where. Cultures going I just respond to that culture is not designed to do What God and his church is designed to do for mankind?
2: I want to bring this up and I, I can't remember if I brought this up to you guys before but but TJ and I Either last week early this week were talking about I was talking about the the scripture about you know uh it's harder for it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a wealthy man. I take that scripture literally. I, I really do. Like, I, I see all the ramifications of wealth not having a great impact on man, and 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 that's how I, I read that scripture. It's like, for rich man, he gets all that wealth. He's going to turn against God. He's going to succumb to all that, and and it kind of informs a lot of my decision making as it comes to money. I'm going to die broke having made a lot of money. Uh, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to you know, try to help people. Am I reading? I, I read that scripture as like, you're better off not being wealthy uh, <laughs> because there's so many complications that go along with it that you
6: most men just aren't capable of handling. I think you're, you're right. I think that's the right way to read Jesus. Uh, 1 Timothy 6 says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And our society really prides itself on wealth and sexuality and freedom. And these are the tools by which we become our own gods. And, And we're pursuing being our own gods by enjoying the idols we create. And the picture that Jesus gives is very different. This coming Sunday, I'm actually teaching on Luke chapter 16, where he describes giving away your wealth before you die, so that you store up treasures in heaven for when you die.
2: Mm. Yeah,
6: that kind of makes me f-
3: fear that I'm very close to death because I'm. <laughs> <laughs> can I, can I jump it before you go, uh, Anthony? As a, I would love clarification on this because there is a proverb, Proverbs thirteen twenty two. a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Mm-hmm. The second part of that is actually what we we're talking about just a moment ago, mm-hmm. but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous, mm-hmm. right? So all these drug dealers, the wealth of these people is yes. being stored up for the righteous. So that's the second part of that. But the yeah. first part, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children seems to contradict what you just said about giving away your wealth. Mm -mm. Obviously, the Bible is not contradictory. I'd love to hear
1: that. So it's it's so Jesus is giving an extreme, you know, example by using the camel and the needle analogy. But the point of it is going back to what Timothy's saying. If you love money and you're doing all that you can to amass as much of it and it becomes your focal point and your God, you're not going to be able to seek after God with that mindset and that heart. Now, there's nothing wrong with uh, taking care of it, using money as a tool, as you point out. You know, when you plan wealth, uh, one of my mentors says this. He says, plan to live long, expect to die early. So as I'm planning out my life and living, OK, I do need to save up a little bit for retirement. I do need to try to make a better path for my kids than I grew up in. But I'm not chasing money. I'm just living a godly, principled life. When you give, God, man, God opens up doors. When I sacrifice, when I live for him, he will provide. And the legacy that I leave, in addition to some of the wealth that I have, that makes a path for my kids. But the real path that I'm showing them is, hey, I want to do this God's way. As you pointed out, money is just a tool and we can manipulate it and use it for our benefit.
2: Bobby, I want to give you the final word because you referenced Luke chapter 6 or 16. 16. 16. Yeah. And I think that's what TJ responded. You were talking about you're preaching about Jesus, a man giving away all his money
6: before yeah. he died. What Your response to what yeah, TJ said? Yeah. I, I think that uh, it's essentially what Anthony said, and that is that we want to do both at the same time. I can still set aside some stuff for my children, but realize like you said that when I die, I don't want anything else other than what I've left for my kids, that I want to spend it all for godly purposes until I'm gone. And then as it relates to TJ's point about leaving
2: it for your kids, there's part of me, I don't have kids, but I've seen uh, kids crippled by the wealth that their parents Mm -hmm. leave them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And people wondering why. A lot of my friends are going through it now because we came from a generation where most of us didn't have anything. And then we look at our kids or they're looking at their kids and saying, how come they ain't hungry like
6: I am? Yeah. Because they ain't never missed a meal like that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. never had yeah. government yeah. cheese. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, so you're saying, in other words, that it could be dangerous if your kids are yeah, I'm, planning to get all that you're. Yeah.
2: I'm not even
3: sure if it's a good
6: thing. Yeah. I, and, Don't if, make
3: them a trust fund kid. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're yeah. handing them what well, Colin Coward's line. You're handing him a meth habit. Good <laughs> luck with that.
6: Yeah. I think that the point that you're getting at it is that uh, it's the old adage. Uh, uh, tough times make for tough men. Easy times make for weak men. And the point is, when life is too easy, uh, we'll depend on ourselves, not depend on God. The, the less you have, the more, you know, you need God's help. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more you have, the less you think you don't need God's help. Mm. And I think that the real uh, key thing is to realize we need God. Oh, yes. And if we have money, let's not make it an idol.
3: Can I one more one more just question about this? Because I've thought I've,
6: I've tried to square
3: this with what God has said about money. And, and then leave an inheritance for your children's children. That's not just a little bit of money. Your children's children, you've got to leave them a bunch of money that your next kids, who may not be as wise as you, don't run through the whole thing. And so I, I'm trying to square that. Could, you guys have studied around this. I know Proverbs is not like the rest of the... Hold, hold for one second. Tell me the verse exactly again. Proverbs thirteen twenty two. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. And so, inheritance doesn't
2: have to mean money. That's where I'm going. And and there's a wisdom that men are expected to impart to their kids, mm-hmm. and a set of name. values,
6: uh, a na- yeah, a name that mm-hmm. carries a level of And it of could respect. imagine the ancient world, you're leaving them property, you know, a, you know, a farm, or something skills, like that. Skills, to be honest with
2: you. Yeah. A lot of these people don't yeah. have skills. You know, like, I can barely change a light bulb. <laughs> uh, I, I can't change a tire. I yeah. really couldn't. If I got a flat tire, I'd be, I'm stuck.
3: I'll help That's, you. You know, roadside yeah, assistance. We got it too. yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but but that, that was that was literally where yeah. I was going with this question. Okay. and That is that. That there's nothing better. My, I would much rather, because my dad has done such a good job of protecting our name, there's no news article with him getting a DUI and killing people. There's no news article of him being in the wrong place at the wrong time and firing shots. It's just, that's not him. He's left me a good name. And I would take that over a $10 million
6: check. And so is that, do we think, what's actually being discussed here? I actually think that the text is talking about financial and things like that. But I think that it does apply to the other things. Okay. But in the, in the context of Proverbs, it was primarily talking about you know, f- uh, a monetary inheritance. Okay.
2: When I think of Mo, I think of Moe, Larry, and Curly, so I'm not sure about that. That's not name. my dad's fault. <laughs> 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 All right, that's it. Uh, I think I hear uh, Harmony, and uh, that means that's the end of today's show, and we'll see you uh, tomorrow.
0: Tell us Cause together we're so much To me Open up your eyes and see